1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the co-host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine Harvey about her new book, Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq, an incisive study of a policy that was long guided by perception rather than reality. Catherine Harvey, or Kitty, as most people call you, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here this morning.
1: Tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, how you got to being interested in the Middle East and how you got to writing this book.
0: Yeah, no, it really was a journey. Um, And I can tell you, you I'm from New York City um, and don't kind of have any ties to the region kind of by background, by family or whatnot. And so it really was a journey how this young woman, girl from uh, New York City, ultimately ended up writing a book about Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Um, and so just at the very beginning, I actually became interested in the Middle East um, back in college at university, now some number of years ago. Um, the uh, And it was sort of in a roundabout way. Uh, so in high school, I had really enjoyed studying uh, foreign languages, modern languages, and I had studied French and Spanish all throughout high school, and I was good at uh, languages, and my freshman year of college, um, I continued to study French and Spanish, um, and then at the beginning, going into my sophomore year of college, my second year of college, um, I thought to myself, I should really give you know a non-Western language a try, and I should add the context that this was September 2000, so it was a year before September 11th um and you know back at a time when nobody was st- studying arabic um but i had had a friend who had studied arabic the year before and had loved it and had loved uh the professor and just had wonderful things to say about it and really so few people were doing it and i was like you know i'm going to study arabic that's what i'm going to do uh and um and so that's what i did and you know, I, I got a lot of kind of eyebrow raises that year because because people say, "Why are you studying Arabic?" And then, of course, the the next year, my second year Arabic class that was um, started that year started with September 11th, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, the people who had the year before been saying, "Well, why are you studying Arabic?" Um, said, "Oh, well, you were so prescient to study Arabic." Well, in any case, I I, I immediately I immediately really loved the Arabic language. And I, I studied history at university. Um, and so that got me into studying Middle Eastern history. Um, and I loved that. And that's really how the intellectual interest developed. And here I am now with a PhD in Middle Eastern studies in this book. Um, as, as, as for the book, how the interest in Saudi Arabia and Iraq came about, um, I uh, so going back to university, my, uh, the summer before my last year of college, this was the summer of two, 2002, um, I was actually, the State Department has an internship program. Um, and I had applied to be a State Department intern. And they have interns in Washington, D.C., but they also have interns uh, around the world at various embassies and consulates and such. Um, and somehow, in the summer of two, 2002, as a 21-year-old, um, I got assigned for the summer to the American consulate general in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. (laughs) And so I spent that summer in Saudi Arabia and I just found it fascinating. Um, And so that really kind of developed this uh, interest in, um, in Saudi Arabia in particular. Um, And, and of course that, that period was, you know, it was right before the invasion of Iraq. So, uh, so the invasion of Iraq was something that I was always interested in interested in, because I was really just kind of coming of age at the time. Um, and, uh, and I also, uh, you know, having the state department internship, I had this kind of interest in foreign policy. So I've always sort of, that's also been sort of a theme throughout my kind of intellectual journey is this interest in international relations and foreign policy. Um, I should sort of fast forward and saying, actually, so from the State Department. I actually didn't join the State Department as a career. Out of university, I actually joined uh, the Navy. (laughs) I joined the military. I I served as an intelligence officer in the Navy. And sort of fast-forwarding, in in the summer of 2006, I was stationed in Bahrain. um, And that was the summer in in Bahrain at 5th Fleet Naval Forces Central Command. And that was the summer that war broke out between... Lebanon and Hezbollah. Um, And I was working on the, from Bahrain, I was working to support the operation to evacuate American citizens uh, from Lebanon. It was a huge evacuation operation. I think about 15,000 American citizens were evacuated. Um, And one of my little projects, my own personal kind of project for the commander that I was working on was kind of just tracking the geopolitical trends uh, during the war um, and I was fascinated by uh, you know S- Saudi Arabia um, Egypt Jordan you know the statement the signals that they sent out at that time um, you know I would have expected to be much more hostile to Israel um, but but of course the signals that they emitted and the statements that were made, were much more hostile to Hezbollah, you know, and blamed the war on Hezbollah, and so that was really interesting to me. And so that really was what kind of, uh, kind of started my own curiosity about, you know, particularly the Saudis, but the other Sunni Arab states. You know, how were they uh, responding to Iran's rising regional influence in the period after two thousand three? Um, so that kind of stayed in my, uh, that, that was something that kind of stayed with me for some years. I got out of the military. I did my master's degree in international relations, the Arab Spring started, um, that, uh, the Arab Spring, you know, I saw sort of the same geopolitical alignments forming, um, as had formed in the 2006, during the 2006 Lebanon war. And again, that was, that was really interesting to me. And that's what sort of prompted the decision to go do the PhD um, and uh, originally my PhD research and of course this book is, is the book version of my PhD thesis. Um, Originally the book uh, was going, or sorry, the PhD was going to look at sort of again, Saudi Arabia's uh, response to Iran's rising regional influence in the period after 2003 Um, as well as some of the other Sunni Arab states. Um, But as I really dug into what was going on in Iraq, um, actually what I found in my initial research, and this is really what then prompted the research project as it developed, um, what I found as I dug into my research about Iraq in particular um, was that a whole range of Iraqi leaders Um, Shia Iraqis, Sunni Iraqis, Kurdish Iraqis, really a whole range of, um, leaders who came to power in the years after 2003, um, they were all reaching out to Saudi Arabia, um, or at least I should say they were trying to reach out to Saudi Arabia, and they were making statements in the press along the lines of, you know, we want better relations with the Arab world, um, and we want better relations in particular with Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is our gateway back into the Arab world. Um, and, and meanwhile, the Saudis were doing nothing to reciprocate um, this Iraqi outreach. And that was really confusing to me, um, because again, I knew that the Saudis were really concerned, and that's an understatement. <laughs> I knew that the Saudis were really concerned about Iran's influence in Iraq at this period, and we're talking like two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And so I would have thought that the Saudis um, would have been, you know, would have jumped at this opportunity to engage with these Iraqis. Um, but it was quite the opposite that that the Iraqi, that the Saudis were doing nothing to reciprocate this outreach. Um, And that, you know, I I was really confused um, and it dawned on me one day that I was sort of, I was asking the wrong question, you know, whereas I had been asking, um, you know, why were the, what were the Saudis doing to um, counter Iran's influence in Iraq? You know, a better question was, well, how did the Saudis respond to the Shia ascendance in Iraq? How did the Saudis respond to this massive shift that had taken place in iraq after 2003 um and so when i reframed the question in that way that's what launched um this whole project that's what really was what uh launched my my real phd research and uh which then turned into this book and so that's that's sort of the background <laughs> to how i got to this book
1: well it's also a great uh introduction or a great way of going into the uh the discussion of your book itself. Um, We'll come back to the Shiites and and perception of the Shiites in a second. But one of the things that strikes me in in what you found, and I think is absolutely true, is that the Iraqi quest to get reintegrated into the Sunni world and to build relations with Saudi Arabia failed even though it was backed by the United States. And and so that sort of, in a sense, raises two questions. One is, what does it say about the ability of the United States at the time to synchronize policies of its allies? And second of all, given that you, know, you argue that, the United, that, that you, you argue the United States failed to recognize that U.S. and Saudi interests were divergent in Iraq, and therefore the question was synchronization at all possible?
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, and this is a, a real sort of uh, additional theme to the book. Um, the uh, certainly the focus is on Saudi Arabia and Iraq, but as you say, you know the the, the Americans. Well, you know this whole uh, case study takes place because, of course, the Americans invaded Iraq and toppled Saddam Hussein and established a democratic system you know, however flawed, which naturally allowed uh, the Shia, the Iraqi Shia to rise to power. You know, the Iraqi Shia, of course, being a majority of the of the Iraqi people. Um, And uh, but uh, uh, but an additional theme to the book is um, the you know, is is the Saudi U.S. relationship. Um, And, you know, to be fair to the Saudis, you know, I, I argue in the book that this that the Saudis and in particular King Abdullah, um, made the de- made a decision not to engage with Iraq, and I, you know, I I, I state I argue that this was a self defeating decision. This was not a, a an appropriate decision, so to speak. Um, but to be fair to Abdullah, um, you know, uh, the Americans had totally flouted Saudi interests um, in invading Iraq. Uh, the Americans. Um, had, totally flouted, ha- had totally flouted Saudi interests. And then the Americans, after the fact, came to the Saudis and said, um, oh, please engage. <laughs> and the Saudis, um, s- you know, seeing what the Americans had done and seeing that it was, you know, totally, at, at least as the Saudis conceived of it, antithetical to their interests, they really weren't interested <laughs> at all in engaging. in in doing what the Americans were asking them to do. Um, And so to back up, uh, you know, in the 1990s, after the Gulf War, the 1990, 1991 Gulf War, um, the Americans in conjunction with the Saudis and in conjunction with other US Arab allies, Jordan and others, um, you know, there had been an effort to topple Saddam Hussein. And the effort had been to topple Saddam Hussein, you know, via sort of a palace coup. How do we foment a coup? Um, And the goal was, you know, pretty narrow. The goal was to get rid of Saddam, um, but to keep his regime in place. So it wasn't regime change. It was just leadership change. And the Saudis were very much on board with that. Um, And um, the... uh, and that, in any case, of course, you know, as, as we sort of all know, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, the Americans, you know, focused their sights on on Saddam, and um, the policy of sort of leadership change, you know, trying to foment this palace coup, you know, morphed into, you know, the Americans then um, launching a full invasion um, of Iraq. And the Saudis were never on board um, with the full invasion, Um you know, it, first of all, it was just not kind of the Saudi, um, at least at that time, uh, didn't jive with how the Saudis sort of operate. But, you know, the Saudis, to their credit, um, you know, and they and they communicated this to the Americans, um, you know, to the Saudis. You know, saw all sorts of unintended consequences that could flow from an invasion of Iraq. You know, and in particular, they were concerned about a vacuum of power developing in Iraq. Um, And, you know, they were concerned that, you know, Iraq could descend into civil war, that it could... um, uh, you know, become a a a haven for terrorists. Um, that you know, Iran would intervene. You know, and and to the Saudis' credit, you know, many of their concerns came to fruition. Um, and uh, but the Saudis did say to the Americans, um, you know, so so they made it very clear that they were not in favor of a military invasion. Um, they continue to try to get the Americans to come back to um, the coup option. You know, we're still in favor um, of Saddam being toppled, but let's go back to the coup option. Um, and, uh, But the Saudis sort of, uh, you know, recognizing that the Americans were set on invasion, you know, the, I, the Saudis at this point com- did communicate to the Americans, you know, all right, if you're going to invade, this is what we want to see happen. And again, the Saudis' preferences... You know, we're all about um, how do we remove just the top leadership of the Ba'athist regime while keeping, you know, the regime in place? Um, you know, and how, how do we keep, quite frankly, a Sunni Arab power structure in place in Iraq? And how do we um, maintain um, Iraq as, you know, the quote-unquote bulwark against Iran? You know, the Saudis, even though at this point they hated Saddam Hussein, they still saw... Um, Saddam as useful in the balance of power. That uh, even if Saddam needed to be gone, his regime was um, critical in maintaining this balance of power with uh, with Iran. Um, And so the the Saudis communicated all of this. Oh, and I think that they communicated. You know, make use of the army. Um, You know the the army is. You know, make make use of the army. you know, for reconstruction purposes and, and you know, et, et cetera, uh, in the aftermath of the invasion. Um, so the Saudis communicated all of this to the Americans. Um, and then the Americans, of course, you know, did, did the exact opposite. <laughs> they, you know, uh, Paul Bremer, uh, who was the head of the coalition provisional authority, the CPA, um, he was sort of the American viceroy in Iraq. Uh, After the invasion, you know, he's very, um, notable now for having issued two orders. These were his first two orders, um, once he arrived in Iraq. Um, and there are all sorts of debates about how exactly these orders came about. But in any case, the, 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 the substance of the orders were to remove the top four levels of leadership of the Ba'ath Party from government service. You know, and effectively, I mean, and effectively this sort of gutted the Ba'ath Party, which had run the Iraqi state. And really as a result of the invasion, the Iraqi state just sort of collapsed. Um, And the second order um, disbanded the army. Um, But so in any case, these first two orders, you know, did the exact opposite of what the Saudis had been asking Pushing the Americans to do, um, and then not only that, you know, the Amer- i don't know if the Americans had really been explicit with the Saudis that they were, you know, planning on um, establishing, you know, a democratic system in Iraq. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the upshot of the democratic system is that it, you know, allowed the Iraqi Shia to majority to be empowered for the first time. Um, and the Saudis saw that, and the Saudis interpreted that, and this goes to kind of the substance of the book, as just, you know, an Iranian infiltration into the country. Um, and so this the Saudis saw what the Americans were doing as just the exact opposite of what they had asked the Americans, you know, pushed the Americans to do post-invasion. Um, and so the, um, you know, I think that uh, Abdullah had, King Abdullah the late King Abdullah had a lot of grievances with regard to Iraq with what happened in Iraq um post invasion but you know i think one of his uh primary grievances was that the americans had just completely ignored saudi interests had had completely um yeah had completely flouted their interests And so when the Americans then came to him and asked him to engage, he just was not interested. Um, And so I think that, you know, I I think that, you know, you asked about what does this say about, you know, the Americans' ability to synchronize their allies. Um, You know, first of all, uh, you know, I think that, no and i argue in the book no amount of us pressure you know there was the grievance that abdullah felt but abdullah again he f- saw this new iraq as antithetical to saudi interests and so i argue in the book that no amount of us pressure could could push could could compel abdullah to accept something that he saw that he himself interpreted as just completely antithetical to his own interests or at least to you know to, to Saudi national interests and so that that is sort of you know a, a limit of American powers that you know you can't get your allies to do something that they um, view as inherently threatening um, <clears throat> uh,
1: I want to go back for a moment just a step further back into history and I think one could argue that the misperceptions in the relationship, between post-invasion Iraq and Saudi Arabia, were almost inevitable given the failure of Saudi Arabia and Iran to find a modus vivendi in the immediate aftermath of the 1979 revolution. And it's not that the Saudis didn't try, they did. They signaled initially their willingness to remain neutral in the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, uh, which started a year after the revolution. The question is, of course, whether Iran at that moment still engulfed by revolutionary fervor and under attack could have responded positively.
0: The, um, uh, yeah, you know, I think that what's interesting uh, from the Saudi conception of the region, uh, and this has been their policy for, well, you know, from the 1970s, 1980s, you know, um, you know, following the British withdrawal from the Gulf, um, the Saudis. Uh, you know, if the three big players in the Gulf were, you know, Iran first, Iraq second, Saudi Arabia third, um, the Saudi policy um, had been to balance Iran and Iraq off each other. So, you know, they had interests in common, and this is before the before the revolution, before one thousand, nine hundred and seventy nine. You know, they had interests in common with the Shah, and they had interests in common with with Iraq, with the Ba'athists, and and the and the Saudis um, had and the the critical advantage for the Saudis is that they had better advan- better relations with each Iran and Iraq than Iran and Iraq had with each other. So the, the Saudis could kind of shift towards one and then shift to the other towards the other. And balance the two off of each other. Um, the uh, there's no question that after the as exactly as you say, um, with the 1979 revolution, um, the Saudis first um, their first kind of approach um, was to try to conciliate Iran, um, and the Iranians just completely rejected this conciliation. Um, Khomeini, you know. Decried Saudi as you know the mini Satan or the little Satan or you know the 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 client of the great Satan, the United States, um, and so the Saudis in the course of uh, from the from 1979 um, re, uh, really um, you know from 1980 1981 um, as the uh, war as the Iran Iraq war was. Uh, uh, developing, and as and also as the Iranians were going af- on the offensive in the war, that was a critical turning point. Um, as the Iranians really began to go on on, off- on the offensive in the Iran Iraq War, um, the Saudis pulled closer and closer to to Iraq, um, and um, and during the nineteen eighties, um, the the Saudis were you know a critical ally of Iraq in the Iran Iraq War. That said, the Saudis actually continued to reach out to the Iranians during the war there was sort of this detente you know it was there it was never a question that Saudi Arabia was sort of distancing itself from Iraq during the war but they did sort of um uh pursue a detente of sorts with uh with Iran in the middle years of the war which then um, got derailed after the um, uh, the 1987 Hajj incident when a whole bunch of uh pilgrims on the Hajj, most of them being Iranian, were killed by um, Saudi security forces after an Iranian um, demonstration during the Hajj. That, of course, uh, derailed the Saudi-Iranian detente. Um, But, you know, going to the Iranian side of the equation, um, yeah, you know, Khomeini was just completely uncompromising. (laughs) And so whereas the Saudis were, you know, at the very beginning... Um, trying to conciliate, do, doing these things and saying these things to try to conciliate Khomeini. Um, at every turn, uh, Khomeini um, just made statements antithetical to the Saudis, um, a, again, calling them, you know, the little Satan and such, um, or implying that they were the little Satan, at least. Um, and so uh, it was that sort of uncompromising uh Approach that really kind of drove Saudi Arabia and Iran together um, and uh, but then Iranian policy towards the Saudis were was much more ambiguous in the 1990s um, and um, and there were periods um, you know even though the Saudis retained a significant degree of suspicion towards the Iranians in the 1990s and that 's outlined in the book. Um, there, there, was a, there were definitely periods of detente in the, 19, in the 1990s, um, and that also, that first really came about as a result of the Gulf War, um, the 1990-1991 Gulf War, that, you know, one of the consequences of the Gulf War was that, um, you know, now Iraq was the primary enemy, adversary from the Saudi point of view, and that sort of brought the Saudis and Iranians closer together. Um, I would argue uh, that, um, you know, the the Saudis in the 1990s came to rely significantly on the United States as as a security guarantor. Um, And, of course, they had a large, there was a large um, uh, U.S. military presence in Saudi Arabia during the 1990s. Um, You know, I would argue that the whole kind of thrust of Saudi policy... Or you know what the Saudis wanted to see happen um, was they wanted to um, you know they had broken as a result of the of Saddam's invasion of Kuwait they had broken irrevocably with Saddam Hussein they wanted leadership change um, in Iraq uh, they wanted a new a, a, a new Somebody new to replace Saddam Hussein, um, but somebody who was going to main, maintain sort of that Iraq as bulwark against Iran. And Saudi Arabia wanted to go back to to what had been before, where, you know, even though that they had um, s- deep sus- suspicions towards both Iran and Iraq, you know, they would have had better relations with both Iran and Iraq than either had with the other, and that they could you know continue to kind of balance Iran and Iraq against each other. Um, that's what I argue that's what I say was sort of the Saudis that's what the Saudis wanted to, wanted to see happen uh, in the Persian Gulf in the in the 1990s and leading up to the 2003 invasion. Um, again, I, I think that they saw it as really important that they had better relations with both Iran, and Iraq than either had with the other so that they could balance between the two. And of course, that's not what happened. The Americans invaded Iraq and a, a Shia-led Iraq um, uh, emerged, which of course was going to have better relations with um, with Iran than the Saudis were, were ever going to have. <laughs> it was no longer the bulwark, so to speak. Right. Uh, I mean, it seems to me
1: talking about the detente, There's there, there are two aspects to it. One is that one one aspect of the detente was that there were domestic factors playing into this, why uh both the kingdom and Iran at certain points were looking at trying to dial down the tension and, and at some some form of rapprochement. And I think it would be interesting if you could talk a little bit about that. But also uh you know the 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 degree to which, because particularly the Saudis were were so operating on perceptions rather than what may have been reality, that those detente efforts were almost doomed by 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 um, uh, by definition, also given the COVID war that was going on between the two, not only in Iraq but also elsewhere.
0: Yeah. Um, so I would say, let's see the detente. Um, you know, there was a, a, a so Saudi Arabia and Iraq reestablished relations because they had cut relations. In 1987 or 1988, um, but they reestablished relations in 1991, I think, at the at the very end of the um, at the Gulf War, um, and um, but really relations were still because Iraq pretty quickly thereafter um, started to um, re rearm. Um, And the Saudis saw this as uh, evidence of, you know, continuing Iranian expansionism. In the book, I, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, kind of Saudi perceptions of Iranian expansionism. Um, And that had really been uh, the upshot of the post-1979 period, that the Saudis had perceived that the Iranians, that the Islamic Republic was, you know, inherently intent on expanding in the region. And that's why Saddam Hussein as the as the bulwark was so important, um, and um, you know, so for uh, through the mid nineteen nineties, even though uh, the Saudis and Iranians had you know reestablished you know now had relations which they hadn't had before um, or had cut, um, you know, there's still a lot of tension between uh, between the two countries. You know, as the Saudis saw, oh, the you know again the Iranians rearming, the Iranians taking hold of Abu Musa, you know, expelling Emir- you know, Emiratis from Abu Musa. You know, the Iranians uh, taking these steps, which you know, one could argue the Iranian the Iranians themselves may have very well seen as sort of defensive measures. And I say this in the book that you know the Iranians may have seen these as sort of defensive measures, but the but the Saudis viewed um, these steps as you know. Uh, evidence of of Iran just being uh, again of of clear cut evidence of, of of the Iranians um, having this expansionist mindset, um, and um, but so but the real détente in the Saudi Iran relationship in the nineteen nineties um, took hold in nineteen ninety seven, and this was when King Abdullah excuse me, King Abdullah initiated uh, this detente. Um, and uh, and it, w- you know, it was interesting to the people who knew Abdullah um, because Abdullah was known as for, for being particularly anti-Saudi, sorry, for, for being particularly anti-Iranian <laughs> um, among his brothers. I don't think anybody was pro-Iranian, but um, Abdullah was known for being particularly anti-Iranian. Um, and what I, um, you know, and so, but this, this detente really came in the wake of the um, Hobart Tower bombings of 1996. Um, and the Hobart Tower bombings, uh, Hobart Tower, Towers is, was a housing complex in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. And it housed, um, again, you know, I, I, had men- I mentioned that there was a significant military presence in, in Saudi Arabia during this period. In the 1990s, um, and H- Hobart Towers um, housed um, uh, U.S. Air Force personnel, um, and, um, the, uh, and the and uh, the and in 1996, the the housing complex was bombed, um, and a number of American uh, service members were killed. Um, and um, and pretty quickly, apparently, evidence came out that the Iranians were um, were behind the bombing, and subsequently, the U.S. Uh, the uh, a number of sort of Iranian clients, if you will, were indicted um, for perpetrating the bombing in the United States. And the Saudis have, have publicly pointed to Iran being behind, um, behind the bombing. Uh, in any case, uh, sort of as, as, you know, in the aftermath of this bombing, there was a lot of pressure um, in the United States on the Clinton administration to respond to, you know, in some way res- retaliate against Iran. Um, and I would argue that, that the detente, the 1997 detente, that Abdullah initiated was really a way of sort of calming of you know this esca- these escalating tensions. That um, in reaching out to Iran um, and establishing um, uh, this détente that it kind of undercut the Americans' ability to retaliate. That the Saudis and the other Gulf states didn't want to be be caught in the middle of a Saudi Iran. Uh, sorry, United States Iran confrontation, um, and, um, uh, uh, and 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 then of course, so Abdullah initiated this when Rafsanjani was still president in in Iran. But almost as soon as Abdullah sort of initiated this rapprochement, uh, Mohammad Hatami was elected president in Iran, and of course Hatami came to power with a mandate to reach out to the regional states and to reach out to the world and so that's when the kind of detente um, really um, uh, uh, really took shape and so those were uh, uh, from kind of nineteen ninety seven when hatami came in to really two thousand and three that that was sort of the high point uh in Saudi Iran relations. And, you know, it, there was a security agreement signed. It wasn't like a, a security partnership. I mean, I don't, I don't think it should be blown out of proportion. But there, there were sort of agreements signed. And, um, and uh, I, I think that the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, kind of, you know, again, there were still, susp- there are absolutely still suspicions on the Saudi side towards Iran. Um, but, but they had, uh, worked out a kind of a better modus vivendi at the time, um, and then it was derailed by the invasion of of Iraq.
1: Was part of the problem post two thousand three that the Saudis, in a sense, were moving in a in an echo chamber, so they were relying on uh, more secular Iraqi Shiite leaders, people like Ayad Allawi and others who had long standing ties to various. Uh, 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 Arab monarchies including the Saudis and in a sense were reflecting and echoing what the Saudis own perceptions of Iran were and therefore you know you just got into this echo chamber that reinforced each other and then you know led you to to questionable policy decisions
0: yeah no i think that that's that's certainly what in my research, what I s- sort of saw happening or what, you know, in my reconstruction, <laughs> what, you know, I, I, I saw happening and what was really interesting. So meanwhile, the, Amer- the, the Saudis, um, as a result of uh, the 1979 revolution and the Iran-Iraq war had come to this conclusion that the, that the Iranians were inherently expansionist. And so, meanwhile, um, the, in the 20th century, um, the Iraqis, uh, you know, various Arab, um, various Arab nationalist regimes in Iraq, you know, very much culminating in the Ba'athists, you know, put out all sorts of anti-Iran propaganda. Um, and it really got to the point in the 1980s that Iraqis were being fed this propaganda that... Uh, pointed that that painted Iran as Iraq's, you know quote unquote, historical problem. that you know, Iraq's historical problem that was that Iran, um, you know throughout the ages, was intent on um, undermining, subverting Iraq through internal conspiracies. Um, that uh, that uh, that uh, Iran or Persia, uh, was you know working with fifth fifth columnists inside Iraq um, to uh, to undermine Iraq, um, and so in the aftermath of um, of the invasion, you know, so Iran absolutely began to intervene in Iraq after the invasion. Um, the uh, and I lay out in the book that you know. Whereas you know it is accepted for sure that Iran um, began to intervene, you know it's not clear what exactly the the extent of Iran's intervention. Um, the uh, but you know there were Iraqis, you know again having been fed on this sort of um, this constant diet of propaganda pointing to Iran fueling internal conspiracies. Um, there were Iraqis who pointed um, to the, this Iranian, the, the Iranians intervening everywhere and having control of the state, um, and you know, and another aspect of the of the um, Iraq, you know, of, of the propaganda in the twentieth century had been to um, another goal had been to cast aspersions on uh, Iraqi Shia, you know, to say, well, you know, of course the Iraqi Shia are um, kind of the natural fifth colonists of Iran. Um, And so when um, Iraqi Shia um, started to take positions of power, and I should say these were, you know, also Iraqi Shia who had wound up in Iran um, during the Iran-Iraq war. um, And, you know, and there were a million or more kind of Iraqi Shia um, who had wound up in, um, in Iran during, uh, during the Iran-Iraq war. You know, and in many cases, it's not a surprise that they had wound up there because the Iraqis, the Ba'athists, had rounded them up <laughs> and had dumped them on the Iranian border. So it's not a surprise that they wound up there because they had literally been dumped on the border. Um, but in the aftermath of the invasion, they began to come back to Iraq. Um, and so among Iraqis, um, and you know not exclusively Sunni Iraqis, also you know plenty of Shia Iraqis, as you say, sort of you know a in, in any case, plenty of sort of secular Shia Iraqis who were um also deeply skeptical of a sort of an Islamist Shia ascendance in Iraq um the uh, uh, you know all of these Iraqis coming back to Iraq from Iran um, you know, any sort of indication that Iran, um, was, you know, had a presence in Iraq. Um, you know, many, um, Iraqis blew this out of sort of all proportion, I would say, and saying, you know, the, the Iranians have taken over, have taken over the state. (laughs) Um, you know, they, they, they are taking over the state and they're looking to subvert the state. And I think that, um, in 2004, the new uh, uh, defense minister, um, who was Shia, by the way, secular Shia, had been a Ba'athist, um, made a statement to the press, uh, made a number of statements to the press and said, literally, that you know, Ar- Iran is um, Iraq's enemy number one, um, and it's doing all these things to subvert the state. Um, And, um, and of course, you know, all of these people also went and talked to Saudi Arabia. (laughs) And so the Saudis, having come to their own conclusion uh, many years before that Iran was inherently expansionist, um, and the Iraqis having been fed on this anti-Iran propaganda by the Ba'athists saying that, yes, Iran fuels all the conspiracies in Iraq, well, then when the Saudis talk to their... um, you know, Iraqi interlocutors. Yes, you, you can absolutely see, um, you know, the Iraqis' perceptions, biases, just completely matching the Saudis' biases, and it becomes this reinforcement that everybody is seeing this um, massive of Iranian infiltration into Iraq, um, and 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 the best example of this because again, it's it's not correct to say that the Iranians were not intervening. The Iranians were intervening. Um, But the best example of how this got blown completely out of proportion um, were the 2005, the January 2005 elections, which were the first um, free elections in Iraq, you know, after the invasion, probably the first free elections Iraq had ever had. Um, in which, you know, the uh, an Iraqi Shia coalition um, uh, gained the most seats in parliament, uh, which was unsurprising given that the Iraqi Shia form a, um, a slight majority of the Iraqi people. Um, and, um, and I should back up and say that actually even that was contested in Iraq. You know, among Iraqi Sunnis, there had been a view that the Sunnis um, – formed a majority of the Iraqi people. Um, that between Iraqi Sunnis, between Iraqi Sunni Arabs and Iraqi Sunni Kurds and other Sunni communities um, like the Turkmen, that um, the Iraqi Sunnis formed a majority of the Iraqi people, not the Shia. Um, and, uh, but so in any case, with uh, all of this uh, uh, with all of these statements and um, concern that Iran was infiltrating into Iraq, and then with the Shia um, being voted into office in 2005, um, there there came to be a widespread um, uh, there came to be a widespread narrative, conspiracy theory, what have you, in Iraq um, that Iran had infiltrated millions. <laughs> Um a million or more um Iranian citizens, not Iraqis, but Iranians, into Iraq to vote in the elections, and that that was the reason why the Iraqi Shia coalition came to power. That it wasn't Iraqi, it wasn't Iraqi Shia voting for this Iraqi Shia coalition, that it was Iranians who had been infiltrated into the country by their government who posed as Iraqis um, and, and voted in the elections and that's why the Shia coalition came to power. And this was a, this was a widespread conspiracy theory in Iraq um, that you know, then got transmitted to um, various Arab capitals. You know, And I know from my sources that um, it, actually, so King Abdullah of Jordan, Abdullah II, he stated this quite bluntly at the time, in late 2004, to the Washington Post, he he actually he actually said to the Washington Post that you know Iran is infiltrating its citizens into Iraq to um, to vote in the elections, um, and I know from my sources that the Saudis, you know, including including King Abdullah, also very much believed that. I th- think the Saudis believe that some uh, on the order of like 5 million <laughs> Iranians had infiltrate been infiltrated into Iraq to vote in the elections. So, you know, whatever again, you know, uh, absolutely the Iranians had were intervening in Iraq after the elections. Um, but, you know, among um, Iraqis sort of deeply skeptical and towards Iran, um the uh, you know the 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 extent of the intervention was blown out of to- out of complete proportion because there's no way that Iran actually infiltrated millions of its citizens into the country to vote in the elections like that that just didn't happen. <laughs> but the Saudis, um, that's I think again from my sources, that's truly what the Saudis believed. Um, and so it's no surprise that they were that when um, the Iraqi government. Members of the Iraqi government came to them to try to engage. You know, and this was the government that the Saudis believed had had formed as a result of these Iranian voters voting in the elections. It's no surprise that they they were not so receptive <laughs> because they saw this they, they saw this government as as the result of, of fraud <laughs> um, and you know as a result of a of a, a of an Iranian conspiracy.
1: You know the, the irony of all of this is that it, it, the the Iraqi turn to Iran really became a self fulfilling prophecy, basically, yeah. Uh, yeah. as a result of being rebuffed, rebuffed by the Saudis.
0: Yeah, I am, um, and that's the uh, th- that 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 is the reason why that's the title of the book. And a self fulfilling prophecy really became the framework um, through which. Uh, the book is told through which I wrote the book and actually so a, a self-fulfilling prophecy it's it actually um, that concept which now of course is just uh, a very common concept um, you know it was formulated uh, by a sociologist it, it originates in sociology and academia um, and the 20th century sociologist Robert Merton um, uh, formulated the concept and he defined, the self fulfilling prophecy as a false definition of the situation, evoking a new behavior which um, turns the originally false conception true, um, and that's really what I uh, um, again in my research what I kind of saw happening was that the uh, that the Saudis had this false conception, false definition of the situation. Um, that that the Iraqi government that came to power was just a kind of a vassal of Iran, I argue and present evidence that that's that was a false definition of the situation. And for the for the Saudis and for King Abdullah, that was definitely a false definition of the situation based on all their pre-existing beliefs, based on all their biases. But the but the new behavior that resulted from that false definition of the situation Is that um, the Iraqis reached out to the Saudis to engage? The Saudis completely rebuffed them, isolated them. And over time, the Iraqis, um, I argue, really became, uh, well, felt very alienated by the Saudis, um, but really became, felt, came to feel very threatened by the Saudis. Um, And feeling threatened by the Saudis, um, they, Moved closer and closer to Iran, um, and so in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, there's no, there's kind of no question that by 2010, and then particularly the aftermath of the Arab Spring, Iraq really was uh, coming into an Iranian alignment. But I argue that it wasn't because th- Iraq's new leaders wanted, uh, you know, that they professed the solidarity with uh, with Iran out of some, you know, sense of being Shia and such. Um, or even you know because they saw Iran as their historic friend or anything, I argue that that alignment really came about um, because of the sense of threat they felt from the Saudis, and so that's where the self self fulfilling prophecy comes through. Come that um, this kind of false definition of the situation um, on the part of Abdullah evoked a new behavior that made this situation kind of come come to fruition. Yep
1: yeah, the. The the Saudi-Iraqi differences are really political. They're not theological. And so that raises the question, of course, to what degree Saudi decision-making was influenced by Wahhabi animosity towards the Shiites and whether that's still a factor in Saudi-Iraqi relations today and obviously in efforts to bridge differences with Iran at the moment.
0: Yeah. I am. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, there's so little written um, about Saudi Arabia and Iraq from the period that I look at, um, and um, and a lot of the people who do write on, who, who have mentioned the topic, have pointed out that, well, you know, the Saudis, um, you know, Wahhabi Islam being sort of the state um, religion, um, the Saudis are, you know, antithetical to the... Um, Uh, to the Iraqis, or, you know, the Saudis are afraid that the, um, uh, that the empowerment of the Iraqi Shia will lead to, you know, the very oppressed Saudi Shia minority in the eastern province, you know, asking for greater demands. Um, You know, I, um, in my research, um, the Wahhabi, uh, uh, the Wahhabi Aspect played relatively little um, of a uh, was relatively less of a factor um, for King Abdullah, and I say King Abdullah because King Abdullah was the person who was really making the decision. He was really the only person who mattered in this equation. It was his decision um, whether to engage with Iraq or not, and he decided not to. Um, And I believe that he he wasn't doing it. um, What what he really cared about. Was Iran and about the balance of power? and the Wahhabi aspect played relatively um, less of a was relatively less important. That said, um, you know what is interesting also is that there were instances of um, Abdullah actually you know be, I went through the WikiLeaks documents um, and you know which have has records of conversations with Abdullah. Um, and of course the the records having been kept by um, by Americans by american interlocutors um, of of abdullah and was what was interesting at least in one res- in one instance um you know again so whereas you know Iran and the ba- the regional balance of power was really what was his primary concern at one point he does actually go into how you know Shia Islam is an insult <laughs> that um that you know that the Shia w- worship idols and you know do all these things that you know you can tell it's very much kind of the Wahhabi um, prejudice towards the Shia. It's very much a Wahhabi um, take on on Shia practices. So um, and you know I would say also that you know Abdullah um, and and a, and, a, and just the Saudis in general having been you know raised in sort of a Wahhabi environment, which demoni has historically, you know, demonized the Shia, that, um, that demonization, um, you know, really just makes, um, you know, is, is very othering, so to speak of the Shia, you know, that the, the Shia in Saudi Arabia have historically been demonized and othered, you know, because of, um, because of the religion, and that makes it even easier for um, you know, in this case, for Abdullah to other the Shia to demonize them and say, "Oh, well, they're just with Iran." That um, that uh, that they're this mar- so. Whereas you know, Abdullah wasn't really concerned about the theological differences, um, but you know, having been around. Um, uh, uh, Kind of these uh, ha- having been around a, um, a theology that only demonized the Shia it was that much easier for him to demonize and marginalize and other um, the Shia as well.
1: Before we round up this uh, section of the interview, uh, I want to look at the story that you tell in the in the book of the closure in two thousand three of a Saudi hospital in Baghdad. That seems to really ha- highlight what happens when perceptions rather than reality dominate. Yet at the same time, there's also this implicit suggestion that hospital personnel were in cohorts with violent Sunni resistance against the Americans and the Shiites in Iraq. Perhaps you can tell us briefly the story.
0: Yeah. So, no, it really is a really useful little um, kind of anecdote. Um, Excuse me. And so um, the Saudis... <clears throat> so you know, as, of course, as I was saying, the Saudis, um, you know, had really been opposed to the invasion, um, but uh, but they recognized they saw the Americans, of course, as their principal ally, um, and you know, if the Americans were dead set on doing this, well, the Saudis wanted to support their friend. That's the way that it has been explained to me, and so um, the Saudis, and I think this really was just out of an altruistic, you know, a charitable impulse um you know uh, deployed a field hospital to Iraq in the aftermath of the invasion um and uh, the field hospital was deployed to Baghdad um and you know and it was just there to treat um you know to to, to treat Iraqis who needed medical attention um and as it was explained to me um you know the Saudis you know, we're very proud of, them, of themselves for doing this. They were taking on risk. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they, they were engaged, um, you know, and again, they were doing this despite the fact that they had been against the invasion. Um, now, it becomes a bit murky what exactly happened, um, but the field hospital operated for a number of months until the end of 2003, and then the field hospital was asked uh, to leave, and... Um, and um, for the most part, my American, um, for the most part, my American sources um, didn't even really remember that it had been there <laughs> in the first place. You know, it was such a, for them, uh, with everything going on in Iraq in 2003, it was such a minor um, episode that they didn't even really remember it. Um, and, but, but from, uh, actually I at, Paul Bremer was one of my sources who spoke to me on the record and he checked his records and he said, he, he told me that he didn't have, he personally did not have any memory of the hospital, but he checked his records and there was something, um, the, the, the field hospital had done something that the Americans considered, um, as kind of violating maybe operational security. Um, and this was also in the context of, you know, post 9-11, you know, there were a lot of Americans, you know, including in the government, who, you know, thought that the uh, uh, Saudis were involved in 9-11, that's a whole different story. But this was the context at the time. And so uh, what I gathered from my American sources is that the, the hospital was asked to leave that, you know, that there was a concern about operational security. Um, when I talked to my Saudi sources, um, they were very proud of the hospital as, as they should be uh, for having deployed it and such, um, their recollection, um, is that the Iranians somehow, uh, uh, caused the hospital to be withdrawn, that either, um, kind of Iranian clients, um. Weighed in with the Americans to get the Americans to ask the Saudis to withdraw the hospital, and one Saudi source actually, um, told me that the that the hospital came under fire um, by an Iranian backed militia, um, and so that was an interesting, you know i i don't I don't have any evidence that the Iran that the Saudi hospital did in fact come under fire from. Uh, an Iranian-backed militia, but just his memory of that was really interesting to me. That that was what he, um, that was what kind of came to mind was that you know that it had come under threat by the Iranians, um, and so that was again very uh, consistent with you know this the Saudi version of, of, of events. Um, was, again, very consistent with their view of, um, that, you know, Iran was intervening in Iraq and that Iran is also, uh, was not only intervening in Iraq at the time, but was intervening in such a way as to exclude a Saudi presence that the, this, that, this, that the Iranians wanted, um, the, uh, the, that the Iranians wanted the Saudis out of Iraq, um, and wanted to prevent the Saudis from establishing a presence in Iraq, and so that's the way that the Saudis remembered the incident. Um, even though, from my, my American sources, I don't think that's the way that it actually played out. Um, but I will say also that it's also the uh, the the incident also is revealing about Saudi-U.S. relations the Saudi-U.S. relationship at the time, in that, you know, for the Americans, this was such a minor, you you know, Iraq was, you know, disintegrating at this point. There was so much going on. The Saudi field hospital was, you know, very minor. Um, For the Saudis, this was really major. You know, they had done something to get involved, and then the Americans, you know, then they'd been sort of asked to leave or they'd been, you know, um, ejected. Um, and for them, this kind of against, I, I, I would say, this sort of symbolized the Americans um, really not taking their interests into account in Iraq, really sort of just um, flouting their interests and saying, you know, we're going to take care of this. We don't want you involved. That, you know, even when the Saudis had deployed a field hospital there and defo- deployed a field hospital to Iraq, um, that the Americans weren't even interested in, in making that continue to work. Um, and so uh, uh, the Saudis, for, for the Saudis, it was, it, was a, it was a very significant incident um, indicating that the Americans really weren't interested in their participation in Iraq and that the Iranians were doing these things to exclude them from Iraq.
1: Catherine, we're, unfortunately, I'm looking at a clock that is ticking. Yeah. Uh, we could go on for another hour, but time is running out. However, before I do let you go, tell us what you're working on now and what your next project is going to be.
0: Yeah. Well, so I'm now teaching um, at Georgetown University. I'm based in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm teaching in the Security Studies Program uh, at Georgetown, and that's been going great. And I've been uh, teaching uh, classes on... Um, military strategy. Actually, Clausewitz and Sun Tzu, and that kind of goes back to my, my time in the military, um, but also um, beginning a course on the Persian Gulf. Um, that's really exciting on Persian Gulf security. Um, and I, I continue to write on Iraq. I, um, the, uh, I've the i sort of developed this uh, interest in not only in Saudi foreign policy, but also um, Iraqi foreign policy. And actually, I, um, I wrote a little bit last year um, about uh, Iraq's kind of new, Iraq has a interesting new partnership that's developing now. We'll see, you know, to what extent it gets off the ground with Egypt and Jordan. And that's really interesting to me moving forward. Um, and, um, and I'm looking for my, my next book project. Um, I don't, I, I have to admit that I don't know exactly what my next book project is. Um, but I am looking for it. And what was interesting about this book project, which of course started as a PhD dissertation, is that, um the, you know, I didn't really know what it was about until one day I sort of had an, epi- had an epiphany and I all of a sudden knew what it was about, or at least knew kind of the direction that I was going in. And so I'm kind of at that pre-epiphany stage right now na- right now with my next book project and um, looking forward to the epiphany moment. But the um, but about the Persian Gulf, there'll probably be a U.S. Angle. Um, I, I've got to say that I remain really interested, you know, from a historical basis on the 2003 invasion of Iraq, um, just because it was such, you know, for me personally, it was my, um, again, it was my coming of age. I came of age in the um, aftermath of the 2003 invasion um, and it was such a disaster (laughs) based on misperception and all sorts of false assumptions um, that that remains, an interest of mine. So that's a long way of saying that um, teaching, writing, and looking for my next book project. So stay tuned.
1: It all sounds wonderful. For listeners who would like to purchase Catherine's book, you can avail yourselves of an Oxford University Press's 30% discount code, which is ADISTA5, A for Alpha, D for Delta, I for India, S for Sierra, T for Tango, a for Alpha, number five, or Hearst Code for 25%, which is Harvey, like Catherine's last name, Harvey25. Catherine, thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. Wish you all the best and take care.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I was just delighted to have this opportunity to discuss the book. Um, and I was just uh, really delighted to ha- um, for the opportunity.